Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Hi, everyone. This is episode number 59 of the Traveling Image Makers podcast with your hosts, Ralph Velasco and Ugo Che. This week, we have an extra special guest I'd like to introduce you to. In this episode, I sit down with famed Cuban-American photographer, Senor Roberto Salas, at his home in Havana, Cuba. Senor Salas is renowned for having been one of a handful of photographers who worked closely within Fidel Castro's inner circle during the height of the Cuban Revolution of the late 1950s and early 60s. Collectively, they were known as the epic photographers of the revolution. Between Senor Salas and his father, also a professional photographer, they've made some of the most iconic images of the Cuban Revolution, many of which I'm sure you'll recognize. Over the past three or four years now, Senor Salas has become a friend of mine, and when in Cuba, I always bring my groups to visit him at his home. There he tells us the most interesting stories about the incredible access he had to Fidel and Raul Castro, as well as Che Guevara and others at the time. In this episode, we'll learn the story behind one of his most famous photos, an image of Fidel Castro lighting a cigar with Che looking on which happened to be the first time he actually met Che. He'll also discuss his time spent as a war correspondent photographing the people of Vietnam, as well as their famed leader, Ho Chi Minh. I hope you enjoy my time spent with Senor Roberto Salas. Now let's get into the interview. I'm here with a friend of mine, Senor Roberto Salas. We're at his home in Havana, Cuba. Welcome to the show, Mr. Salas. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Now, uh, we were just here with my group, and uh, we come here often because I really enjoy bringing my photography groups when we come to Cuba and to meet you and to learn about your fascinating career as a, as a photographer. So uh, if you would, just give us a little bit of background about yourself and uh, your photography and, and uh, tell us about your, your fascinating um, background with uh, Fidel Castro and, and Che Guevara, and etc. Well, first of all, um, I was born in New York. Um, and one of those strange cases uh, that you're not going to find too many of them in Havana. An American who has lived in Cuba almost all his life. Um, I started photography very young with my father. We had a photographer, a photo studio in New York. And uh, we used to do a lot of things there. Uh, anything, you know, to, uh, to make a living, as I said before. And, uh, but my father used to do also freelance work for magazines and newspapers. And I used to help him. I used to go, I quit school when I was 15 and started working with my father. And, um, well, that's the way life was, in, uh, let's say, in the, the uh, mid-50s, you might say. And during that time, he, one time he received a, a request from a magazine in Cuba, Bohemia, to do the, uh, they wanted to cover the story of this uh, group of 
activist against the government of Batista at that time. And they, uh, they show up in New York. They have a couple of meetings there. Uh, small group, about six or seven of them. But that's more or less uh, where you might say this whole adventure starts because the, uh, the guy in charge of that group, the guy who was the leader of that group was uh, Castro. So that brings about, uh, you know, knowledge of what was happening in Cuba at that time. Uh, we started getting associated with the people that he leaves behind. We do something for them, uh, something that uh, a lot of people calls their attention. I pull off that uh, publicity stunt with the uh, Castro's flag on the Statue of Liberty. Well, at that, that, I was 16 when I did that. Um, the thing was that uh, there was a lot of things happening already in Cuba at that time. And the American press didn't reflect any of this. So what we wanted to do is provoke them to talk about Cuba. So I got the idea of placing this flag on the Statue of Liberty and taking pictures of it. And uh, there were about four or five of us, young guys, almost all of us. We go up to the Statue of Liberty and place the flag. I take pictures of it. We take the flag back. It was the only flag we had. I gave it out to all the newspapers in New York. And uh, it became something important because it coincided with one of those miserable days in the press that nothing happens. Uh, nobody important came. Nobody important died. So it made the front page of four of the seven newspapers in New York. And I'm 16 when I do this. So this gives me with the Cubans a reputation. Uh, that right at the beginning, when the first uh, group of Cubans that comes in from New York, I come in with them to Havana. And um, I see Castro about a week later. Um, I say hello to him like everybody else. I didn't, I didn't expect he was going to recognize me or anything like that. But it just so happens that he did. And uh, first thing he did was ask him for my father. He said, where's your father? I said, he's still in New York. He said, why does he come down? We're going to make a new newspaper here. We need people that we know who they are. We know what you have done. You, in the sense, my father and me. Sure. And uh, <clears throat> what are you doing now? I said, well, I'm taking some photographs here on him. He said, well, that means you're going to be with us sometime. I said, yeah, for the time being, I'll be around. But as I said before, I'm still here. I stayed, uh, it was, it was a, a big step for me. I mean, one day you're in New York, and the next day you're with this group of rebels. It was a new country. I didn't know anything about. I knew from my father and my mother, but uh, I started working with them, started traveling with them, went to New York, went to Washington, went to Latin America. And uh, there was a group of us who used to work in that time. You know, a lot of names that probably uh, in time, you know, because you've been involved more or less with a little bit about the Cuban photographers. Um, this group was called the, uh, later, years later, was known as the, uh, the Epic Photographers of the Revolution. In other words, they took pictures of the, the first years. Uh, I would say that lasted until about 67, 68, more or less, when it started to change. The concept of the press changed, and uh, 
and the usage of image became less and less. Those were, and it became an enormous body of work, which we didn't do it uh, knowing that we were, you might say, uh, recording history or anything like that. We were doing our normal, uh, our normal daily work for the newspapers and for the magazines. But it became important years later because um, was, that was what promoted the image of, of Cuba all over the world. It wasn't promoted through statues or through monuments. Or, it was promoted through photography. And um, I'm very privileged and proud to be a part of that group. And uh, there's only two of us left, Ernesto Fernandez and me. But um, we, did a, we did a lot of stuff and, uh, and learned a lot. We did learn a lot uh, and perfected our style, uh, you know, getting into, you know, the nitty-gritty of, uh, of, uh, of the profession, you might say. Um, none of us documentary photographers. We came from different fields. Um, fashion, commercial, this, that. I didn't come from anyone. I, I started all the way from the beginning. But I had my ideas, I had my, uh, you might say, uh, my, uh, my examples that I followed. But you gotta remember that those years were the years of the, the big photo magazines, you know, Life, Look, Paris Match. And then you started to learn, see names, and you know, like Eugene Smith, uh, Elliot Erwitt, uh, Cartier Bresson, you start learning seeing their work and you at the beginning I wouldn't say imitated but you you know they influence you a lot uh, aside from that you well there's an element in there that you know you have your own personal taste and that you incorporate that all into into it another thing that I think it's uh, pretty curious about uh, that stage the lack of materials the lack of film the lack of uh, paper, lack of a lot of things, uh, on the long run made us better because sometimes we had to do a picture story maybe with uh, like one yard of film, you might say. And uh, so in other words, every time we used to press the shutter, you got to be very sure of your exposure. You got to be very sure of what you were doing, uh, the angle, and it made us better. Yeah. It's not like today, you know, and you see these kids around there sometimes, you know, with the with the new generation of cameras and and the digital world, they put their finger into a camera, they go bum 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 bum, and then uh, then they look at about 20 frames and they say, oh, this one. Sometimes I ask myself, I said, who took the picture? Was it the camera? or Was it you? Right. You know, it was, it's changed a lot, but uh, and I'm still working today. I still, through the years, I've done everything. Publicity, I've done commercial work, I've done record covers, I've done posters, I've done everything. And you're not uh, saying at all that you're anti-digital photography because you've been digital a digital photographer about 12 years now, right? That's right. I, I've been, uh, I've been uh, digital for 12 years, you might say. As a matter of fact, I applaud it. I applaud digital photography because it's a way of getting out of the dark room. 
I one, one of my first recollections as you might say as a, as a kid was I was four years old I was moved out of my room into my sister's room and my room turned into a dark room so I, I you might say in the background maybe subconsciously I hated dark rooms because uh, we had to make a living there you know making dozens and dozens of stupid prints of who the hell knows what. And uh, those are the years in New York. Another thing I learned at that time was that uh, those years, I, I say that uh, my father and me, we used to take pictures. And uh, because we had to do things that other people wanted. And I would take pictures of, you know, weddings and of birthday parties and of and crap like that, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, I started to do photography when I came to Cuba because I started taking photographs of what I liked and the way I liked to see them. And, uh, and nobody told me what I had to do, you know. And, and, and I became very, very independent of them. Well, I left the press in the 70s. And that doesn't mean, the, because the press wasn't, uh, you might say, my, uh, my background. I, uh, it was a mixture of so many things. I would say up to somebody told me recently, which I didn't notice, but he said that I was one of the uh, the very strange photographers that existed today in Cuba. In any case, that that I've covered so many different fields. I don't have anything in particular. It's a specialty. Okay, yeah, I, I'm well known because of all the images of of those first years of Castro, of, of Che, of everybody else. But uh, I was a war correspondent in Vietnam. I've done uh, essays on uh, Afro-Cuban religions. I've done essays on mining. Uh, oh my God, I've even done, I have nine exhibitions I did on nude photography. And uh, I even have a book on nude photography. The only book published in Cuba of nude photography, I did it. And you know, it's a big change, you might say. It's a, such a different field. And it's, uh, photography is one way. I mean, the, the, I divide photography into two groups, good and bad. <laughs> In other words, uh, and if you're good, you can, you can do anything. It all depends on your personal interest. And also, uh, I think from the personal point of view, it has to do with, uh, I have to keep doing something, and I have to keep changing. In other words, I, there's a constant change. In other words, I, I'm not enamored in any particular topic, any particular style, any particular form. And uh, and going back to digital photography, digital photography has opened up, you might say, uh, another world, you might say. Not that you couldn't do in a dark room what you do in digital photography, you can but uh, it makes it easier. And then it gives you more time to, to be able to experiment and to think about. Right, and the, the nude photography book that you did, were those, was that created here in Cuba or were they Cuban models? Where was that made? Totally in Cuba. It completely, totally in Cuba. I went into it, I think the first thing I did there was... Um, my first, one of my first exhibitions were 
uh, theme I, on tobacco. In other words, I used all my models were dancers. There was no professional models in Cuba, so when I used dancers from the uh, from the uh, folkloric group, female and male, I used all uh, Negroes, colored people. For me, it was a way of identifying the country through the Negro. It was a way of also, you might say up to a certain point, uh, nude photography in the world, which I had seen, could be 90% white. There's very few in nude and black. And, uh, but it identified the Caribbean, it identified the country. And then I used tobacco as textures. And, uh, and I, uh, at that time, I, that, word, that body of work was in a film. That was a film project, that wasn't digital. In other words, I sandwiched two negatives. The news on one side and the textures on the other. And uh, I did an exhibition, I did a book on that also. And what I, year would that have been? Oh, it would have been 92, 94, around that area. Although I had had two nude, nude exhibitions before. Um, but the big body of work was, I would say, would be tobacco. It was more, you might say, more complete up to a certain point. Yeah, and we'll have some examples of that work because it's really interesting how you decided to use such an iconic uh, part of Cuba, meaning the tobacco and the dancer. That's what gives it, gives it the, uh, no, that brings it into the country, you know what I mean? It's, a, it's, a, it's the logo of the country. No, absolutely, and it's uh, it's a really unique. I've, I've never seen anything like it. So we'll have some some examples of that for our, li our listeners and uh, to take a look at uh, on the web page. Um, going back to your uh, mentioning that you had been a war correspondent, uh, I'm sitting here in your home, and you've got these beautiful pictures around. I see some pictures over your shoulder of Vietnam. Tell us about that. You were saying that uh, you, were, you weren't necessarily photographing the war itself, but looking for life outside, and I think that's a really interesting uh, subject. It was, because, um, first of all, there was a lot of work being done in Vietnam by the photographers in the South, because I worked in the North. But um, it wasn't, I wasn't attracted to, you know, the, uh, the nitty-gritty of the war, the victims, uh, the, the, the bodies and stuff like that. Although I have some of those things, because the war was going on, and logically to be able to uh, uh, locate in time and place, you got to have some of these things to illustrate. But um, what I wanted to do is to show what the people, how the people live, besides the war, aside from the war, during the war. How did life continue? And uh, it became something very interesting for me. And I did, uh, listen, Ralph, I'll tell you something. If, if I were to say, if you were to ask me, of all that you have done all your life, in more than 50 years of 60 years of photography, what would you say would be the, the most complete body of work that you've done? And contrary to what a lot of people think, I would, I'm very fast, I would say, the, what I did in Vietnam. Although I'm well known for the Cuban stuff, but uh, as a body of work, what I did in Vietnam, I have thousands of negatives there. 
thousands. I think it's fascinating uh, that, that you would look to see, you know, because there's life going on in conjunction with the war that was happening uh, throughout much of the country. And uh, I think it's a really interesting subject to, to think about, well, you know, how do these people get on with it? Because it, as much as the war was widespread, certainly regular life had to go on at the same time. Sure, sure. I mean, um, in, in the, um, for instance, I'll give you an example. Life started, you know, the, the daily life of the normal Vietnamese during those years. started at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. Then about 7 or 8 o'clock it stopped because that's when the sun started to come up and then the, when things started to get dangerous, you might say, basically because of uh, the bombings and stuff like that. And then it started again after 7, 8 o'clock at night and then it went till 10, 11 o'clock at night. It was an incredible time, incredible time. I learned a lot there, a hell of a lot there. Yeah, I just got back from Vietnam in December. We're now in February, and uh, it's amazing the country. Have you? When's the last time you were there? Now it's a different country. Yeah. It's a completely different country. I wouldn't. Uh, I've known people who have uh, who have been there recently, and they tell me, it "says uh, Robert, what you knew of Vietnam doesn't exist anymore. It's uh, it's completely different." The last time I was. I tell you, it was after, after Cambodia, it was about 82 or 80, 84, 1984 was the last time I was there. Although they invited me a couple of times later, but uh, I became, through the years, you know, I, you, know you start growing old, you start, I get, I'm claustrophobic a little bit with airplanes, and the trip from Havana all the way over there is, you know, that... I, I'm not. I'm not into that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I noticed, uh, and I'd only been going to Vietnam for a couple of years now, but uh, the economy seems to really be booming. Uh, it's got this mix of socialism and ca- capitalism, and you could really see people's uh, lives progressing. The uh, women dressed in wonderful clothes, and the people are going out for drinks and enjoying a meal. So uh, that the, you can really see what's uh, that the economy is progressing there big time, and I don't think you would recognize it. No, but uh, there's one thing, uh, listen, they were a very uh, they were a very labor, labor-intensive population. They've been for generations and generations they have suffered so much and uh, they, they value so many things, the work and quality and, and the style of life uh, even during the war. In other words, uh, they have the you might say they have the backbone to be able to do what they have done. And uh, aside from the personal point of view, they deserve it. After what they have been through, they deserve that. Can you draw some parallels between Cuba and Vietnam and the socialism and with capitalism sort of moving into Cuba? Uh, do Do you see any parallels there? You might say in some some sort of sense, but it's it's a completely different system. It's a completely different system, in the sense that uh, the character of the people are different. It's a different character, and um, they're trying now here, you know, to to try to find a way to try to find a a, a, a road to follow. They're experimenting. to still. It's in an experimental stage. They're trying to locate. I don't think they're going to arrive at uh, 
at the Vietnam, the Vietnamese uh, image, uh, they're going to find something in between. Although I'm a bit, you know, aside from all those kind of things, I, you know, I dedicate myself to my my work and stuff like that. But they're trying. They're trying. It's. I would think that you know, lifting the embargo is going to help them a lot. That's one of the uh, one of the main drawbacks here. But uh, but they, I don't think they'll ever arrive at that stage over there. I don't know. I'm. I'm not going to see it anyway. <laughs> it's going to take a long time. Yeah, yeah. It'll it'll be a long, long time. Um, and you had. Uh, access to Ho Chi Minh as well in the mid to late 60s, just before he passed away in 1969. Is that right? That's right. I, uh, I took place in 66 and 67, and uh, three or four different occasions. One of them, I was at his home. I took a whole collection of pictures of his home, the way he used to live and stuff like that. And uh, from what I know, I'm not, I can't be 100% sure of it, but I think I'm the only photographer on this side of the world who took pictures of him. I'm not sure for 100%, but I don't remember of ever hearing or seeing anything done by an American or by an Englishman or by a Frenchman even, or by a Latin American, definitely not. So, uh, but in any case, that, that makes no difference, you know. I mean... Uh, I had the privilege of meeting him, I had the privilege of taking pictures, and I was able to, uh, to you know, to, to uh, you might say that what I did, I later donated to the museum, the Ho Chi Minh Museum in Hanoi, and they have a lot of stuff of mine there, because they didn't have anything on them. They had some things, but not stuff that... Uh, I don't like to say that what I gave them is quality when they don't have, it's not quality. They didn't have the style. In other words, uh, they, they were at war for many years and, you know, they didn't have time to, you know, develop art photography or have good equipment or anything like that. Yeah. Um, one thing that I don't think a lot of people understand is that Che Guevara was quite a photographer himself, wasn't he? Che was, was pretty good. He has a book out, which I don't have, by the way. Uh, for some silly reason, I don't have it. But in any case, I've seen a lot of this stuff. He was pretty good. I would say pretty good. I, I don't say he was, a, you know, a master or that. But he was, he was very conscious. He always, every time he saw a new lens, he used to call you over what kind of a lens that is. And uh, especially at those, in those first years, that there was a lot of stuff coming in from East Germany, cameras coming in from Russia, and stuff like that. And he was curious looking at all these things. He always had a, um, that I remember the, the camera that he used most was a, a, a Nikon, an SP, a rangefinder camera. And uh, for instance, every time he traveled, he never went with a photographer, and, uh, and he traveled the whole world. He used to take pictures of everything. And uh, he made a living as a photographer in Mexico, which I told you before. He worked for a news agency there. He covered uh, one of the, I think, the Pan-American Games or one of the uh, Central American sports events in Mexico. He covered it for this news agency. And uh, that's the reason that I say 
that because he took this when he was killed he had a he had a camera with uh, 13 or 14 rolls of film or exposed on them all the images that you see of the uh, of um, the few that have uh, that have been seen of the uh, of his last days of his life were all taken by him and by you know with his equipment and stuff like that and uh, because of all this uh, Jay was a guy who didn't like to have his picture taken. He didn't. Typical photographer, right? A typical photographer. He didn't like to have his pictures taken, and um, and that was one of them. But he was incredible. He was only around three, three and a half years, you might say. And there could be twenty-two, twenty-four exceptional photographs of this individual because he had a certain, I don't know, a charisma that came through. There isn't a bad negative of him. Take it by, not by me, by anybody. He always looked good. And he, and he had such a personality that came through in the pictures. You take it in comparison, you take a, a person like, like Fidel. Fidel could be, in the Guinness Book of Records, as being the most photographed political personality of the 20th century. He's been there enough time for that. Right. And as a photographer, I can tell you, I don't think there are 20 exceptional images of him. There could be two or three good ones, but that's about it. Not with the, not with the characteristics of... Uh, the British Journal of Photography wrote an article about that a couple of years ago, talking about, you know, before it became that icon, you know, the picture of the cord that took with the stars. There were exceptional photographs of this individual. The way he looked, the way it came through. Now, what, what is it? Uh, they say, uh, no, it's uh, a photo personality. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But I mean, you just clicked anything at him and he came and he looked beautiful. Well, one of my favorite pictures of yours is certainly the shot of Che and Fidel lighting a cigar, Fidel's lighting the cigar, and Che's sort of looking over his shoulder completely by match light, you said. There's no other real light source there. Tell us about how that image came about. Um, there's a bit of a something curious. I, I take the picture because that was the first time I saw Che. I had seen him. I knew they was taken, that was taken about 10 or 12 days after the beginning. I have seen him on television, the, the newspaper, this, that, but in person I didn't see him. I hadn't taken a picture of him. I was living at that time right at the presidential palace. The old, the old presidential palace, Batista, the dictator, had a personal photographer who had a photo lab. There was a small dark room there. Not a photo lab, it was a dark room. And larger, a couple of trays, and this and that. And that's why I was living, because I didn't have a place to live here. So, and second of all, I was right in the middle of, a, you know, that old convulsion of that those moments. So one, one evening, about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, I see a lot of new faces. You know, the rebels that more or less I had already known, the people who were around, around Fidel. But I saw some new faces, and I see one of the guys say, "Who are these new people?" He says, "No, because Che's up there with Fidel." So I grabbed my Leica, 
At that time, I had a Leica 3G. And I went up there to see if I can get some shots of this guy. So when I get up there, they're sitting in this room, which, by the way, is still there. And the table is still there. It's part of the museum now. Uh, not because of my photo. <laughs> but in any case, and they're sitting at the back of the table, you know, the tip of the table, and the other table. And the table is on the room that she can't go to the sides. I mean, you're in the back or you're in the front. So what I do is I place the Leica on the table and use the table as a tripod. And I noticed that Fidel was, luckily for me, had a very lousy cigar, in the sense that he had to constantly light matches, you know, <laughs> boom, boom, boom. And then I see every time he used to hit a match, he used to flare. <laughs> and, and they were crushed in that position. So I started making time exposures. One second, two seconds, three seconds. I don't know, you open it up and wait for the match and then close it. And there was so little light, you know, where there was no match, you couldn't see anything. And, uh, and one of the shots came out and that's it. And that's the one I liked the most because it has one of the, in other words, my interpretation is this. It has something that a photograph should have. In other words, a photograph that leaves you with question marks. In the sense that something is happening. What are they doing? What are they talking about? It's, it's a sort of like conspiracy. It's a secret. It's um, something mysterious. Um, I don't know. They, and there's a certain atmosphere. And that's the only, it's the only one I have like that. And uh, it's, it's, it's unique in, in everything that I have. It's the only one that's unique. And I was lucky, you know, they stood still, everything was still, and just, I got it at the right moment. I could have taken about 10 or 12 exposures, which the only damn one that was good was that one. But uh, <clears throat> I made a pretty good living with that picture. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, it's it's uh, just an iconic shot of the two of them, and uh, it's nice that you had several opportunities to get that kind of shot. And you you, you notice that he was, as he was lighting the the cigar, his face was lighting up, and then you recognize that boy, that's I need to time this just right. And you had a few more opportunities to catch it, huh? No, the trouble is you open up, open up, uh, and wait for the exposure, you know, and. And it's a it's a long shot in a sense, you know. Until they, that was a that was an image, like many many other times when you do, uh, especially at that, those years when you you uh, you work in natural light photography, you know, you know, no flash, no this, no that. Uh, many a times, you know, you you're worried about what what you got until you got to the dark room, until you see the negative, you don't know what you have. And that was a big question mark until I hit the negative. Uh, and then when I saw the negative, I said, no, I got it. But uh, you're not sure. You're never sure. Well, that's, that's the uh, interesting part about film. You never know what you've got until later. Uh, one of your other iconic shots is of a, a young Fidel Castro walking in Central Park. That's my uh, father's. Oh, excuse me. This is your father's shot. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit about the backstory of that. Well, that was uh, that was the first time we met him, my father and me. And uh, I was with my father when he took that. But um, 
but basically that's that's a four by five. It's a four. It's taken with a four by five camera. That was taken part of that picture story that the magazine wanted. And it was trying to symbolize Castro in New York. Um, Castro at that time had just left prison here, and he left the country to start collecting funds and stuff like that to go to Mexico. That's why he made the exit of the. Uh, to put together the uh, expedition to come in, into Cuba and stuff like that. And uh, he started in New York, that's where he started. And uh, he went to collect funds and stuff like that. So the magazine was very interesting because the magazine was anti-Batista also, the magazine Bohemia. And they were uh, um, very interested in showing, you know, this guy, there were rumors that he was in hiding. There were rumors at that time that it was, uh, that he was been dead, that they had killed him. There was a lot of rumors around. And the magazine wanted to prove that the guy was still alive and still active. And he shows up in New York, and that was the, that was the job my father did. And uh, from there, well, I'm still here, as I said before. Wow, so, so that sort of introduced you to uh, this political icon and... and uh, sort of jump-started your career eventually, because uh, how old would you have been at that time? Fifteen. Fifteen. Yeah. I was fifteen. Listen, around that you can tell, you can do this, uh, um, you can say this. This is something that I've thought many a time. Sometimes in your life, you know, you can choose your career. You can choose your what you want to do in life up to a certain point, you know, but you have that option. But where that, that decision is going to take you and where it's going to evolve and how it's going to turn you, you have no control over that. Because, you, for instance, you take me. I was born up in New York, raised in New York, 18 years old. I mean, well, there was no, aside from my mother and my father, I had no association with this country at all. Well, I knew about, you know, normal, like everybody else. But Excuse uh, me, because your parents were Cuban-American, right? They were Cubans, Cubans. Cuban, Cuban. My, my father, no, my father never became an American citizen. Oh, okay. Because in, in the back of his mind, the old man always wanted to come back somehow. He had left here. My grandfather took him out of Cuba when he was 14 years old. And... Uh, he never adapted. He never adapted uh, uh, because of the weather. Basically, my father had varicose veins in his legs, and the winters used to kill him. And uh, he always wanted to come back to Cuba. He, he, every time he had a chance, and he had a couple of bucks on the side, he used to come back. As a matter of fact, he came back. He met my mother here. He came back, and he got married in Havana. So no, he always wanted to come back, but economically, it wasn't possible. So all this, you know, all these things put in a nutshell, you might say. Um, when the, the system changes here, when this thing comes into power, we see the opportunities. Economically, it was, it was, it was uh, much better for us. My father was making a good salary. I was making three salaries. I was making four times as much money as I made in New York. Aside from the fact that I'm traveling all over the world with this personality, I'm only 18 years old. Like, who the hell wants to go back to New York? <laughs> so little by little, then you start forming roots. You meet a girl, you get married, you have children. Uh, 
and you say, well, this is my life. Well, you, know, you take it as it comes, you know what I mean? But I'm still here. <laughs> well, thank goodness for that. Well, I can't thank you enough, Mr. Salas, for inviting us here and for uh, taking us into your home and for giving us uh, really an interesting look into what it must have been like to be around in that period of time. And uh, I appreciate your uh, your uh, taking the time to be with us and uh, giving us this fascinating look into history, really. And so appreciate it very much. Okay. Uh, well, you're very welcome. For, uh, and I'm, I always say, listen, uh, opportunities, you got to exploit them when they come to your way. Unfortunately, I was too young at that time. I say, unfortunately, I was too young at that time because I couldn't have done much more. I couldn't have done much, uh, and it was aside from this uh, picture that you like so much, that which I like so much, I could have done much more. And yet, uh, I'm sorry I didn't know what I know today. And uh, but that's the way life is. Unfortunately, youth is wasted on the young, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, thanks again, and uh, I know that uh, you're trying to work on a, a website, and we'll certainly put that up when uh, when you get that together. I know things are difficult for doing that, uh, being located here in Cuba, but uh, certainly we'll keep in touch on that. And uh, thank you again for your time. Really appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. There's no problem. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Traveling Image Makers podcast. I want to thank my guest, Senor Roberto Salas, for spending time with me to make this interview possible. I really hope you enjoyed it. And if you'd like to learn more about me and what I'm up to, please visit my website at photoenrichment.com. And you can find me and my company on all the social media outlets by searching for at photoenrichment and at Ralph Velasco. You can find Ugo and what he's up to by visiting his website at ucphoto.me and you can connect with him on all the social media outlets by googling his name. All of this information will of course be in the show notes for this episode which you can find at ttim.photo/59.